Our series this Advent has been focusing on peace, and the thing we've been exploring is this claim that the angels made 2,000 years ago that as of the birth of Jesus, there is peace on earth. And that's a pretty challenging statement to say that there has been peace on earth these last 2,000 years. And so we've talked about how that could be true. And in the first sermon, we explored the biblical logic that is faith in God. Basically, that if God is eternal and God is faithful, then seeing one part of God's plan is as good as seeing the whole plan. If If you have seen God do part of it, you know he will do the whole thing. And so Simeon saw Jesus at eight days old and walked away at peace because he knew that seeing Jesus as a baby was as good as seeing him reign as king. Right? It was as good as seeing the whole thing fulfilled because God finishes what he starts. And it was that assurance of the future, of future peace, that allowed him to live at peace in the present. And not just feel peace, but also to actually make peace. We talked about those two sides of it, that we are able to experience peace in the present and to be peaceful with others because of our assurance of the peace that is coming in the future. We talked two weeks ago about what that means for our guilt, for uh, living in the hope that God will undo the damage that we cause. And then last week we looked at having uh, peace for the hurt as we experience pain and suffering in this world. Today, we are going to focus on grief. We are going to be looking at how the, mess- how the coming of Jesus can provide peace for us as we are grieving. It's something our culture doesn't like to address very much. Uh, the fact that grief is a human uh, guarantee. We say that the, the two things you can count on are death and taxes, and both of those actually lead to grief. Um, so really, grief is, is one of those as well. And I will tell you that as you are listening to this sermon, you are in at least one of these two camps. You are a person currently carrying grief, and or you are a person who knows people carrying grief, and will one day carry grief of your own. In fact, one of the first things I learned from uh, my, my boss in my last job, the senior minister in enterprise, he did his doctoral work on grief. And the first thing I learned from him as he taught me about grief was how much you're carrying that you don't even realize is there. So you may be in that first camp and not realize it. But the point is, you are carrying grief and or you are around people who carry grief and you will carry grief in the future. And my goal for this sermon is to help us to understand where, how Jesus brings us peace. Because either you are in need of that peace or you will be in need of that peace or you will be called to offer that peace to others. In the past sermons, we have been in Luke, but today I want to take us into the book of John because in the Gospel of John, there is a story in which we not only see Jesus explaining the Gospel, but we get to see him acting as a pastor. And we get to see him addressing grief in different ways. And so I will encourage you to have your Bibles open to John chapter 11. I am going to read the chapter with a few, I'm going to skip over a couple of passages a couple of parts of it, but I'm basically going to read you the story 
in John 11. And what I want you to do is I want you to pay attention to how Jesus speaks to the different parties in this, in this story. Because he's addressing grief, different types of grief in different ways. So this is John chapter 11. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, and it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, his sister, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, and they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this, so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen, strap, with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Whenever I talk about grief and how we minister to people in grief, I tend to come back to this passage. 
And the reason is because, as I said, you see Jesus acting as a, as a pastor, as a minister, as a, um, in, in, the, in a, someone who brings comfort. I don't want to say acting as a pastor as if pastors are the ones with the job to comfort those who are mourning. We all have that job. But here Jesus is being pastoral, and he does it differently with the different groups with whom he interacts because they each have different needs. They each are in different circumstances. And so I think we can learn a lot from watching Jesus interact with these different groups about what it means to bring peace to those who are mourning. The first group that I want to talk about is the disciples. Now, the disciples are a group who... The text doesn't tell us that they have any real relationship with Lazarus. They, they know of him. They would have seen him as, as they came through in their circuit. Whenever they came to Bethany, they would stay with this family. So they, they knew of him, but it doesn't, it's not important to us in the story for the author to tell us. John doesn't need us to know that they actually knew Lazarus very well. So for them, Lazarus is someone they know of, but they are observers of his death. And what they know about Lazarus, the one thing that we know that they are aware of is what's contained in the message. They said, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, disciples, their job is to follow their rabbi and to watch everything he does and learn everything they can from observing him. And so now, as they observe Jesus, they open the file for how does this man who claims to be the Messiah deal with death? with the death of someone he loves. That is a unique file, someone to whom he is personally attached. And the reason why it matters that Jesus knows and loves Lazarus is because it brings into sharper focus the power that Jesus does or doesn't have over death. They are following Jesus in the hopes that he has power over death. But they need to see that demonstrated. And they've seen him raise people from the dead, usually who've been recently died. But, but now they know Jesus has something personally invested in this situation. And so the question of Jesus' authority is in play here. Which is why when the crowd see Jesus cry later on, they say, Couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? That's the question that it brings up. If someone that Jesus loves dies, why did that happen? Does that mean that he couldn't stop it? So for the disciples, at least potentially, death has disturbed or at least brings into question their faith in the authority of Jesus. They are watching with the question, if Jesus' friend dies, does that mean he can't stop the people he loves from dying? Because I'm hoping that he loves me, and I'm risking my life by following him. So how the power he has to protect his followers is really relevant to me. This question of suffering that we, take, that we look at as observers is a very important question dynamic that we experience in our world today because a lot of people at least part of how they make their decision of whether to follow God is based on whether it's credible to them that God allows people to suffer. I remember watching an interview with a a Stephen Fry is a famous British comedian 
and he talked about, I think, I can't remember if it was a debate or not, but basically his argument was he can't believe in a God who would allow children in Africa to die of brain cancer. He doesn't know any of those children. He's not personally invested in those, in those children. But as an observer, seeing death happen, that challenges his ability to believe in Jesus. So this is an important question. But notice that it is an abstract question, right? It's a theological question about how, how we make sense of a world in which God claims to be all-powerful and yet bad things happen. And Jesus responds to the disciples by answering that particular question. He says, This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That is a textbook, theologically framed answer. Right? He's saying, first of all, the sickness will not end in death. Notice he carefully doesn't say Lazarus isn't going to die, because he's going to die. But that's not going to be the end. He says, death is not going to win here. And whatever does happen is happening for the glory of God, and specifically to glorify the Son of God. So God is in control every step of the way. No matter what you see happen, remember that God is in control. And this is not death defeating God or the Son of God. Okay? That, is a, that is a theological answer to a theological question. A very, very important question. But it is different from the question that Jesus will be answering in the next encounters that he has. So Jesus explained to them that God was still in control. He gave them the theological, the, the, the framework to make sense of a world in which death happens and grief happens. And the sense of that framework is that God is still in control and God is working through it. Now, to be very clear, Jesus does not say that God killed Lazarus to glorify himself. I mentioned this last week, that sometimes we jump too quick to thinking we know why God allows a particular bad thing to happen. In truth, Scripture gives us many different reasons why a bad thing might happen. And any human being who says, I know, is speaking out of turn. We can narrow it down. But what Jesus does say is that God is still in control and God is using it. Okay? That is the, the logical answer that Jesus offers the disciples so that they can navigate the situation they're about to experience. The next party that Jesus interacts with is Martha. And Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. This particular passage is probably the one that I read aloud the most frequently as a pastor. It ends up in most funerals that I do, and with good reason. But I will tell you that the context for it has changed for me personally in the last year. My brother died on February 10th. And ever since when I hear, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died, I'm not thinking about Lazarus. Now, it doesn't mean that I have the same attitude or the same question necessarily. Frankly, I've had all manner of attitudes and questions and, and things as I've wrestled with that. But I'm, 
I can't help but think about my brother. And as I've reflected on this story, as someone in a similar situation to Martha, I, I have a personal kind of take on what's going on in her heart at this time. I'm, I'm, not, saying this is, I'm not saying this as a, a biblical scholar, and, and this is my interpretation, but this is what I feel as I read the words that she says. She says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died yet, but there's still time. There's still a chance. You can still stop it. You can still undo this. Because one of the huge weights of grief and death is the finality of it. In a moment, everything has changed. Your future is completely changed. Martha lived in the same house as Lazarus. And she would have continued to live in that same house as Lazarus unless and until she got married. But even then, people didn't move far in these days, and so she probably would have continued to live in Bethany, which means that her plans for the future included her brother being nearby the rest of her life. She expected him to be at all the family holidays. And all of a sudden, in a moment... All of that has changed. I have no idea what it's going to be like going into this Christmas in my family, but I know it will never be the same. And it's, it's that finality that is so overpowering. And there is a phase that we go through in grief where, it's, uh, you know, where we bargain, where we think, I'm going to wake up and this won't have happened. Somehow this has to change. And all of that is bound up in the fact that for Martha, and I mean, de- grief does so many things, but it, what we're seeing here is that for her, it has disrupted, which is too small a word, for her, it's disrupted her hopes and her plans for the future. The rest of her life has been completely changed. An important part of her future has been lost seemingly forever. Martha is different from the rest of us because she has someone she knows that she could go to that she thinks might be able to do something about it. Some physical person. But that, that loss of the future, that complete and final change to your life, it's just, it consumes her. And Jesus tells her, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. See, she has her theology correct. She knows that God is faithful and that that God has promised good things. So yeah, abstractly, I know the doctrine. I know the doctrine. I know the catechism. I know that something good generally is going to happen in the future. That's not really what I'm talking about. That's not really giving me the comfort that I want in this moment. And Jesus tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. What does that mean to say, I am the resurrection and the life? What he's saying is, I'm not asking you to trust in some abstract doctrine. I'm not asking you to trust in some vague sense that there's something good happening later. I'm asking you to trust in me. 
trust in me. And what's the difference between trusting in Jesus and trusting in abstract principles? A person has a personality. A person has a character. A person can love you, and a person can be trusted. Abstract principles can't be trusted. Vague hopes about the future can't be trusted. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the reason, not because of the, bit, the general things that they taught you in Sabbath school, but because of me, because you trust in me. The one who believes in me, who trusts in me, even if he dies, he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Now, what does that mean? We could talk about that for days. What I think it means is that the, the nature of the resurrection is such that when you get on the other side of it, it will be as if it had never even happened. Because our faith is so secure in a person. And to know that when you come out the other side of it, it will be as if it never happened. That's how small of a role that death will play in your eternal existence with God. As if it never happened. But the key to it all is trusting in the person of Jesus. Because the truth is that the questions of death and suffering and grief in this world are too big for us. It is impossible for a human being to know everything you would need to know to make the calculation or the decision of whether it is good or right for us to live in a world where there is suffering and death and loss. We cannot actually knowingly judge God's decision to allow the world to be the way it is. And so what he invites us to do is to trust in the character of the person who made that decision. And trust in the character of the person who has come to save us. And that's why he asks her, do you believe this? Because that's the other thing. Abstract principles don't care if you believe them. Gravity does not ask if you believe in it. Right? You're going to fall. Jesus invites her to believe because that makes a difference. And she says yes. She trusts in him even though she has no real idea of what the future is going to look like. The last person that Jesus interacts with is Mary. And Mary is in a different situation from Martha. You have to kind of look for it, but there is a difference in Martha's situation and Mary's situation. Martha came to Jesus. She officially received him as a representative of the family. And then she said, if my brother had not died, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, yet you can still do something about it. When Jesus interacts with Mary, I'm sorry, I haven't finished our point from Martha. Jesus reassured her that he could restore the future, that he could restore the future. But the emphasis is on Jesus. When Jesus encounters Mary, she doesn't formally receive him, and she doesn't bargain with him. She throws herself at his feet, and she simply says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Martha bargained. Mary accused. 
Mary lamented. She's not even in an emotional space where she can bargain, where she can talk about the resurrection. She is simply deeply, deeply wounded. She is enveloped in her grief. And all she can think about is the fact that Jesus could have stopped it. And what that does for her, when all she can see is her grief, when she is drowning in her grief, knowing that Jesus could have kept it from ever happening, what happens there is that it challenged her trust in the love of Jesus. It challenged her trust. Jesus told Martha, trust in my character and what you know my character to be. But for Mary, the character of Jesus itself is in question. Because it's very important for us to remember that the abstract question of why bad things happen to people is a completely different question from why did this bad thing happen to me. Those are completely different questions because one of them is a very important theological question and another one is a personal relationship issue. Why did God allow this thing to happen to me in this way, at this time, under these circumstances, when I have done these things and I have been this faithful and the whole situation, it is a personal challenge It is a completely different situation. And notice that Jesus responds to it in a completely different way than he responds to Martha or to the disciples. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply troubled and he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. He asked them where they put him. And then it says, Jesus wept. Now, scholars have, have struggled with that verse, Jesus wept. Why is Jesus weeping? And depending on their preconceptions about Jesus and, and the incarnation, all these different things, sometimes they'll say, well, he's weeping because of the faithlessness of all these people who are mourning when they are supposed to trust in Jesus. That is absolutely not the fact. That is absolutely not what is going on. Jesus shares their sorrow. And I don't just mean that Jesus is sad that they are sad. Jesus is grieved by the death and by the pain and the grief that is caused by that death. Jesus mourns alongside Mary And because of the same loss as Mary, Jesus wept with her. And the important thing that that communicates, remember the whole question for people who believe in God is, how do we make sense of a God who allows bad things to happen? And we can't check his math because we can't conceive of the universe in that scale and we can't know all of that. So it comes down to a question of his character. Then we have to ask, 
What is the character of this person who will allow these things to happen? And often we see God maybe as a, as a heavenly accountant doing math problems to decide, you know, how many, how many casualties is this worth? And, and, you know, what can I do with this? If I, if I let this person die, I can do this thing over here. And he's just like making plans and stuff. And we might picture God that way. We're in the midst of our grief. Sometimes we are caused to think of God that way when somebody comforts us at a funeral by saying, God has a plan for this. Starting with that implies to people that God treated that person as a number, as a pawn, to move around to make something else happen. That is not how Jesus responds in the midst of your grief. How does Jesus respond? He weeps. He weeps because he shares that pain, because Lazarus was never just a pawn or a number or part of a strategy, Lazarus was always a person that Jesus loved. And so is Mary, and so is Martha, and he is directly touched by that loss. One of the things I tell people sometimes is that God grieved first. When this person you love died, God grieved first. He is right there with you. And that's, that's what the incarnation means, isn't it? That's what Jesus coming to earth means, right? Is that God is not overhead watching us and not caring. He is standing next to us in the muck with us. And he never simply leaves us to this world and to the suffering of this world. He is with us. And when we are asked to trust God and to put our faith in God, we are asked to put our faith not in some vague principle, not in some theological ideas, but in the character of a God who comes down here among us and shares it with us. That's what we hold on to. More more important than abstract theological arguments we can have is the picture that we have of Jesus weeping and sharing our suffering. And soon, in just a couple of chapters, of him taking that suffering onto himself. Because if, if this is where the story ended with him weeping with Mary, then there wouldn't really be, this would just be another story of people mourning a death. It wouldn't offer us any more hope than any other story. But Jesus is actually going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And what that does for us is it doesn't give us the hope that Jesus is going to show up and bring our loved ones back to life in the near future. You know, like it doesn't mean that we expect Jesus to come in and resurrect our loved one out of the coffin. Doesn't mean that we get that special interaction. But what does it do for us? See, without resurrection, what Jesus, Jesus' words, they bring no peace. And one of the interesting things our culture does these days is we try and hold on to the optimism without the foundation. So we have this vague sense. Sometimes if you go to a non-religious funeral, there's this vague sense that good things will happen with no reason to think that. We are not asked to vaguely trust in some optimism that the world after is better than the world here. Because nothing in this world makes us think that the next world, if there is one, would be any fairer. Right? But that isn't where the story ends. 
Every interaction that Jesus has had with the disciples, with Martha, and with Mary points forward to the moment when he stands in front of the tomb. And notice the way he says his prayer. He says, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of this crowd standing here, I said this, so that they may believe you sent me. The hope is not in anything that Jesus is really about to do. What Jesus is about to do is to demonstrate to these people who God is and what God is doing through Jesus. This is for our benefit as the observers. Because the thing is, Lazarus comes out. Eventually, Lazarus dies again. You know, he's not still alive, right? He dies again. But that resurrection, it shows us Again, one of those glimpses in history of the hope that we look forward to in eternity. This happened as a historical fact, as did the resurrection of Jesus. And so the power of God to undo death has already happened in the world. So Jesus raised Lazarus to prove that he had brought peace and hope for everyone. The resurrection of Lazarus is a a little moment of proof that what the angels said was true. The ultimate proof of that is the resurrection of Jesus. But Jesus doesn't just get raised from death himself. He gives that life to others. And as we look over the way Jesus has um, brought the message of peace to each of these different parties... I want us, there's a couple key things that I want us to learn that kind of overarch all of them. And the first one is that grief is the right response to loss in this world. Sometimes we get the message as Christians that grief and feeling grief or expressing grief is somehow faithless and it indicates that we don't really trust in the resurrection. How do I know that grief is the right response? Because it's how Jesus responded. It's how Jesus responded. Scripture does tell us that we should not grieve like those who have no hope, but it doesn't tell us that we should not grieve. If it's hope, if we're grieving in hope, that means it's not yet fulfilled, which is why there is still grief. But grief is the right response when something good or someone good is taken from us. It should leave a hole. It should leave a lack because that thing should not be gone. That person should not be gone. That, that, that is the right response. So there is nothing in Scripture that tells us that we will not grieve in this world. In fact, Jesus says in this world you will, face many, you will, you will suffer in many ways. But the message of the resurrection tells us that we can have hope And that hope can bring peace. The hope that we have is not that we will someday get over the loss. Finding peace in the midst of grief is not getting over your loss. It is rooted in the trust and the faith and the hope that loss will be undone. That's what gets us through this life. It's not that I have learned not to care about the person that I lost. 
One of the big things that my dad has, he's told me multiple times, uh, that a big lesson that he has learned in, in his grief class that he was in, in the last class they said, don't worry about forgetting your loved one. You couldn't do that if you tried. And that's not the goal. But the hope that we have in Jesus is not that we're going to get over it or the hole will be filled in this life, but we can get through this life knowing that that hole will be filled. Knowing that death will be undone. And that certainty can bring us peace in the time before we receive that restoration. And the last thing that I want you to hear is that grief is a journey, which means that peace looks different at each stage. And that's important for us to remember as those who are grieving and as those who are called to minister to the grieving. Notice that Mary and Martha, both sisters of uh, Lazarus, and they were in very different stages of grief. Do you know why they grieved so differently? Neither do I. One of them wasn't right, and one of them wasn't wrong. Grief hits you differently. It hits people differently, and it even hits the same person differently in different occasions. Grief happens to you. And how you react to it, you can no more control than how, you'll react, how your body will react if you lose an arm. Right? That happens to you. And the important thing for us to remember as people who, who cling to this hope is that the promise of peace looks different in different stages of the journey. Think about what would have happened if Jesus had swapped those answers around. What would it have meant to Mary if she had broken down crying, convinced that he didn't love her or didn't love Lazarus, and his response had been, this sickness won't end in death, and um, this, will end in the, this will bring glory to God and to the Son of God. How would, would that... It's an accurate statement. But what it actually communicates her into the moment is, yeah, Jesus really doesn't love Lazarus very much. He used them as a pawn. And if Jesus had been talking to the disciples who needed to know that God was in control and he had responded by breaking down into tears, it would have been an accurate representation of how God responds to death, but it would have told them that God wasn't in control. If you're looking for a strong leader to tell you that he's in control and he breaks down into tears, that's, that's miscommunication, right? And often what happens is we expect of ourselves to be comforted by the wrong thing or we expect others to be comforted by the wrong thing. And so the first thing we need to do as those who comfort the grieving is to listen and to be attuned to where they are in their grief and to provide them the kind of peace that God offers in that circumstance. There will be people for whom the theological answer to the problem of evil will do absolutely nothing. Might even drive them farther away because it makes you think of God abstractly and they don't need an abstract God. They need Jesus weeping next to them. And they have him. They just need to know it. Our ultimate hope, and, and th this is why I, I love the Blue Christmas service because the first, I didn't invent it at all. I, I, I'm late to the party on these. But 
I, the first time I saw one of these services, I realized this is exactly what Christmas is about. The blue Christmas service is the most honest, accurate Christmas service we have. Because if we didn't have that loss to deal with, we wouldn't have needed Jesus. We didn't need Jesus just so that we could enjoy the winter and, and coo at babies and eat candy canes. We needed him because of the pain. We needed him because of the loss, because of the holes in our lives, because we need the hope that they will be restored. At this point, as I close, I typically will ask you to consider how Jesus is calling you to respond. And I do want to leave that, that offer open, that if you do not have the hope that comes from trusting in Jesus Christ, today is the day to find that hope and to give your life to him. That You should do that today and don't let a moment pass. You can come up during the last song. You can talk to me or Pastor Rachel afterward. Uh, we would love to talk to you through that. If you want to commit to being baptized or to uh, learn more about being a member of the church, you can grab that red card and fill that out. If you want to be uh, more connected with this congregation and to learn more about what it means to follow God and to have people to share the burdens with you, that's what our small groups are for. And so you can fill out the green card. And if you want to serve others, you can fill out the blue card. And those are all parts of discipleship. But right now, what I want us to focus on, I want to invite you to do something our culture doesn't ask us to do very often. Look for your grief. Our culture teaches us to suppress it. I want you to look for it. Where do you have it? You might be surprised at the things that you're grieving. And as you find them, offer them to God. Know that he is there next to you, bearing them with you and offer them to God. And specifically, I would encourage you and invite you to come back at three and just experience a time where we really do face our grief in a way that is more true to the gospel than our culture generally allows. And if you're not in that moment of grief, then I would invite you to be here to support those who are. Because it is not the job of the pastor to bring comfort to the, to the grieving. It is the job of all of us. It is the job of each one of us to bring comfort to those who mourn. We ask the praise team to come up. And we're going to sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Which reminds us that this time of Advent is about longing for Jesus. Because he came once. And as sure as he came once, he is coming again to make all things right. And we put our hope in that return. We put our hope in what Jesus Christ does to restore all things, to make all things new. We're going to live in that hope. I invite you to stand as we sing, O Come, O Come,